top of tea tales, Hetchel Woods and Crags, a special piece of God's own country or county, one of my favourite places to visit. It must have been in the late 1950s when I was first taken to what we call Bardsey Woods. It was just off Weatherby Road and a mile or two after Red Hall. My younger brother wasn't born when we first went, and it has always been one of my special places. At these times there were few cars, so anywhere that was slightly off the beaten track was difficult to get to. As a result, there were few visitors, and you tended to have some of the places to yourselves. Certainly when we first went, you were lucky to see another car parked in the space just off the road, and the sign telling you there was a footpath was difficult to see. The pathway leading up the slope to the railway lines were quite steep, and I found it a bit of a trudge, but then you appeared next to the railway line. At this time, there were still tracks, but I don't ever remember seeing a train. Now the tracks have gone and the line makes a great walkway and can be quite busy on a good summer's day. We crossed the tracks and before us was a wood that had a mixture of trees. There was holly, but most of the trees were tall, well-established pines. The wood here was dark, mysterious and worthy of a bit of exploring. I remember well visiting after a powerful storm and quite a few of the pines were toppled. I don't think they've ever been removed. The roots were exposed and make great climbing frames. Just before Christmas, my father would take my brothers and me hunting for holly to decorate our house for Christmas. If you picked the right time, many of the holly trees were covered in red berries and we would prune a few sprigs to take home to decorate around the mirror that was above the fireplace. The path through the first wood was clear and bordered the railway track, but there was a small wheat field separating them. After a short walk, we reached a stile. After the excitement and challenge of clambering over, there was a vast field of wheat. The field stretched up the rolling hill and disappeared from view, depending when in the year you visited. You could be faced with bare stubble, waiting for the plough, newly turned soil that looked for all things like chocolate cake, fresh, rich and producing a smell of fertility and earth. Short days afterwards, the field was bright green with spikes of corn reaching upwards in a sudden burst as the weather brought spring and life was vigorous and new. A few weeks later, the wheat was waist high and I loved to watch it move in the warm breezes and I imagined it a sea of green, deep and mysterious. Late summer saw another change and the field was yellowing and soon the harvesters would be out, throwing dust up as the harvest was brought in, leaving the shaved stubble like an old man's face. Every visit would see the fields change, and I've always thought how wonderful it would be to be a farmer. Watch your life march by in the seasons, rather than the hurly-burly of city life. Just to the right of the field, the track edged along an old dam. The beck still flowed into it, but the dam wall was breached but we used to explore along it. The old mechanism for a sluice gate was still there, but no handle, and the water level was low and overgrown with bulrushes. When the rushes were in flower, the spikes were magnificent, like velvet-covered sausages skewered and waving encouragingly to you. I remember sometimes collecting some rushes, and my mum used them in the flower-arranging classes she was doing. Along the footpath that ran along the field, there were thick growths of wild grasses and flowers, 
and the one we loved the best was the Himalaya balsam. The balsam had bright pink flowers, and this made it attractive to Victorian flower hunters who brought it and other exotic and beautiful plants back for our gardens. The seed pods were green and had bands moving from the stem to their tips. They are water-drop shaped, and we loved them because when they were ripe, if you gently squeezed them, they sprung apart with surprising force and shot their seeds long distances, leaving the pods as coiled springs. Left to their own, the wind or animals would trigger the pods, and unfortunately, they've been so successful that they've spread along Britain's waterways, causing great ecological damage. We had no idea and loved to trigger the pods. The plants also had a strong, very pleasant aromatic scent, and mixed with the lovely flowers would have attracted people to plant them. I guess this was just another example of human intervention messing things up. We saw another as we were walking along the trail a little further past the dam, and on the side of the trail by the beck was a rabbit. It was quite a large one, but it clearly wasn't well, as it didn't hop away when we approached. There used to be a lot of rabbits about, and it was clear by their scooped-out divots and droppings that they were everywhere. After harvesting, they were clearly visible, playing on the stubble fields, apparently oblivious as the kestrels circled, waiting to pick their afternoon lunch. This rabbit had watering eyes, and it was foaming at the mouth. My grandfather on my Scottish side had been a gamekeeper, and my father had been brought up near Oban in the cottage, so he knew what was the matter. He kept us away, and we walked on, and luckily we met a farmer walking the other way with his dog, my dad explained to him what we'd seen, and he thanked us and said that he would take care of it. We watched the elderly cap-wearing gentleman stride down the track accompanied by his border collie, and I saw him reach the spot where the rabbit was. He stopped, climbed over the wire fence, and then he raised his walking stick and struck downwards forcefully several times. My mum and dad explained to us that he was putting the rabbit out of its misery, and that there was a horrid disease that was introduced to kill off the rabbit population, called myxomatosis. Beyond this, we entered the Hetchel Reserve itself. This is a wonderful area, and rising to the left as we walked was a strange arrangement of hazel trees. They were strange because they'd been coppiced. The trees were cut down and new growth had sprouted from the base in numerous poles. These poles would have been harvested in the past for firewood and other purposes, it created a wood where more light reaches the ground level, and this encourages wild plants and grasses to cover the floor in a rich carpet. We saw hazelnuts in winter, but they never appeared to reach edible sizes. As we walked past this, the area to the left rose steeply, and amongst the beech trees great rocks appeared. Hetchel Crag is not as magnificent as the Cow and Calf or Armscliff Crag, but it has its own beauty. In many ways, it's a microcosm of what makes the Yorkshire countryside so magnificent. It is varied, always waiting to show you something new, and endures some harsh weather that shapes the land and all that live there. My older brother and I would play around the crag, and apart from the odd warning not to fall and to keep away from the edge, we were left to play and explore, whilst Mum and Dad sat and had a rest and opened a flask of tea. 
Usually that would be the limit of our walks and we would return the way we came to the car. But as we got older, we went further and visited Pompacali. I did not know it was called that until recently. It just looked like a series of strange mounds and we would climb and explore them. It is thought that they were Roman fort remains, but apparently it's now suggested they're spoil heaps from Roman quarrying at Hetchel Crag. When I was a teenager, probably lower sixth at Roundy School, I brought a friend of mine, Chris M, to go and have a go at abseiling on the crag. The maximum height would have only been about 30 feet, and so I thought it would be a good place to start. Three of us came, but I can't remember who the other boy was, but he and I climbed quite a bit. We did the walk to the crag carrying the rope and other equipment. We climbed up the side of the crag, found a good place to fix the rope to, a solid tree with roots that were clinging for dear life to the millstone grit. We set up, and in those days I used a waistband of thin climbing rope wrapped around several times, rather than the more common harness used nowadays a screw-gate carabiner and a metal figure of eight to wrap the rope around and then you were ready to start. The art was to hold the rope above the carabiner whilst you held the loose rope with the other hand and by moving it closer and further away from your body it would act as a brake to slow your descent. Chris leaned back and the rope suddenly stretched and he thought he was falling and edged sideways but he controlled it well. Unfortunately, the rope tied to the tree as a belay pulled tight and trapped his foot between the rope and the rock edge. He didn't realise and pulled his free arm in, releasing the rope, and he slid backwards further, but couldn't move his foot. The result of this was that he was almost upside down with his foot caught under the rope. We shouted for him to pull his arm out and stop the rope running, which he did, and he was safely held upside down, foot trapped, and I couldn't help laughing. My climbing friend and I thought it was hilarious. Chris, I must say, didn't. Today our phones would be out and his humiliation would have been on social media in seconds. In those days, you escaped global ridicule until almost 50 years later someone tells the tale. After our period of mirth, we gave assistance. We both pulled the rope that was trapping his foot. With this released, he was back on track and did an admirable job at completing the abseil with aplomb. As anyone who falls off a horse should do, as soon as he'd reached the ground, he got his breath back, thumped us both a few times and went back up and did it again, with no complications at all. Chris was never short of courage and he showed his mettle that day. I don't suppose he told his mother about his exploits, but he lived to tell another tale. The last time I returned to Hetchel Woods was only a few years ago and it's still the same wonderful place. The problem now is that many more people want to share the experience and so I don't think you'll find it deserted as we so often did. The woods are near Bardsey and East Keswick on the Weatherby Road heading towards Weatherby. It's a short drive from the Ring Road at Wellington Hill past Red Hall and is easy to find. See if you can follow my childhood trail. Recently, it featured in my novel A Trembling of Finches. In the novel, my protagonist visits the woods and he and his partner are lucky to escape with their lives. The thriller features a number of parts of Leeds and the surrounding countryside that any resident of the city would recognise. 
If you enjoy my tales, then you might be interested in knowing that there are two collections of them. The first, A Cup of Tea Tales, The Early Years, and the second, Another Cup of Tea, The Teenage Years. Both are available as paperback from Amazon and ebooks from Kindle.